0: You know, we live in a very divided world, (laughs) Republican versus Democrat, the political left versus the political right, New South Wales versus Queensland. (laughs) Now, this was not the world that we were promised. Uh, This past week, I was reading an op-ed piece from the New York Times. It was written in 2015 by Bono, the lead singer of U2, and Mark Zuckerberg by the founder of Facebook. The title of the article was, To Unite the World, We Must Connect It. The basic thrust of the article was that if only we could connect the world through the internet, if only the whole world had the internet, then the world would be united. Uh, The article was promoting the gospel of technology. The idea that technology will bring a virtual utopia. But I ask you, remember this article was written in 2015, I ask you the question, Over the last five years, has our world become a more united or more divided place? (laughs) Has technology brought us into a time of utopia, or has it just revealed what is really in our hearts? You know, I put forward to you that rather than the past decade being a time where even though technology has increased, we have become united, I put forward to you that we've actually become more divided in our society. You know, we are living in a world where if you agree with me and my convictions, then I'll accept you as part of my tribe. But if you don't agree with me, then I'll ride you off as being unworthy of even giving the time of day to. So how do we as God's people stand for Christ in the divided world in which we live? How do we make a difference for Jesus in a world where as soon as you open your mouth, And people hear what you have to say, they will file you in a particular file and say, oh, you're that type of person. And then they'll refuse to listen to anything else that you have to say. Well, here's where Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 9 to 12 are very simple and yet very pertinent to the moment in which we are living You see, Paul says, if we want to win the respect of people on the outside of the church, then on the inside of the church, we need to continue to cultivate loving relationships. And then we need to just simply live exemplary lives as a testimony to Jesus. You know, more than ever before, people won't be one with our words but they'll be won by communities of God's people who have this dynamic of love on the inside of the church, and by people who are living exemplary lives in their personal lives, in their day-to-day lives. And that will win the respect of people on the outside. So Paul says, if you want to make a difference in a divided world, first, it involves what's happening inside the church. Now, Paul had commended the Thessalonians, we read earlier, for their labor of love in chapter 1 and verse 3, but he didn't want them to hit the snooze button and think that their job was done. They were doing well. But Paul encourages them to do even more. And that's because love is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. You see, in contrast to lust, which Paul has just warned the Thessalonians against. In verses 1 to 8, Christians should be characterized by love. You know, often we get lust and we get love confused. But love is not like lust. Lust is selfish and self-serving, whereas love is serving other people. Now, Paul uses the Greek term Philadelphia in verse 8 as he introduces this topic of love. He says, now concerning brotherly love. The term Philadelphia was used in the uh, first century to describe the affection, the deep affection that would exist in families between members of those families. And Christians took that word Philadelphia and said, this is the type of dynamic that should be in the church, this deep brotherly affection. You know, last Sunday was very interesting for me. As a senior pastor of the church, I know nearly all of you. So when I looked out, I could see and I knew all of you. I know that. All of you don't know one another because we have a large church and we now have five different services that people attend. But as I looked out and I saw all of you, I found this deep affection in my heart rising up for all of you. Did you feel that last Sunday as you came to church? This deep affection. These people are my church. Well, this deep affection doesn't come from the fact that we are all alike because, in fact, we're very different. You know, I was born in Queensland and I love rugby league. Some of you don't even know the greatest game of all. You've yet to be converted. And some of you come from different parts of the world and English is not your first language. But the amazing thing is, is through the work of Jesus, we have one father and we're one family. And Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, by this all men shall know that you are my disciples If you've memorized the Holy Perverses, if you know Wayne Grudem's systematic theology off by heart, now he said, You will know that they will know that you are my disciples by your love that you have one for another. Leon Morris writes this in his commentary in 1 Thessalonians. He says, Something which should give modern Christians much food for thought is the way that the early church was characterized by love. Behold, how these Christians love one another is hardly the comment which spontaneously comes to the lips of the detached observer nowadays. But if our manner of life was based on the New Testament, something like this would be inevitable. So the distinguishing mark of the church should be love. But where does this love come from? Well, this love doesn't come from us it has a divine origin. Look down in verse 9. Paul says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And then he says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You know, this love that is, should be in the center of the fellowship of a church actually comes from God. Paul says, God taught you to love. You know, when you think about it, God the Father has taught us the extent to which we should love. You know, the Father loved you to such an extent that He was willing to give His only Son. How loving is God the Father? He was willing to offer the most precious thing to Him, for you. God the Son teaches us about the nature of love, that love is sacrificial giving to serve the needs of others. How loving is the Lord Jesus that he was willing to take the nails for you. And the Holy Spirit, he teaches us about the experience of love. We are told in Romans 5 verse 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You see, not only do we know the extent of love, and not only do we see on the cross the type of love that we are to have, but the Holy Spirit fills our hearts, or should be filling our hearts with pulsating love for one another. But even though that love comes from God, it doesn't mean that we have no part to play in cultivating a life of love. Look down in verse 9 again, Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers... Do this more and more. We're asking you, we're commanding you to do this more and more. Now, since Christ's perfect example is our standard, there's actually no one here who is yet perfect in love. Everyone here can learn to love their spouses, learn to love other members of this church in a deeper way. You know, one practical way to do this, and I wouldn't mind if you got out your phone right now and you did this, is to write out 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 8 on the notes of your phone. It's one of the best passages in the Bible which speaks about love. And then why don't you examine yourself through the lens of that passage? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, he says, love is patience. You know, would my family or co-workers describe me as a patient person? Paul says, love is kind. Am I kind and gracious to others, especially when they fall short of my expectations? Paul says, love does not envy. You know, when I see someone else getting the very thing that I want, am I grateful that they got that thing? Or do I find envy coming up in my heart, love does not brag and is not arrogant. Am I self-focused, always trying to impress others? When I hear someone telling their story, am I ready to give my story of how I'm so much better than them? You know, earlier this year, um, we had a Zoom call with all the members of my family. And my brother-in-law, because we're all over the world, like my, some, my brothers are in Queensland, my sister, she's in the UK. And my brother-in-law, who lives in the UK, was was telling us about how he's writing this book. And I couldn't help but mention that, well, I've actually written a book, you know, I wrote a book book four years ago. I have to admit, that was pride. That was arrogance. Love is not rude. Do you know, am I rude to people? You know, parents, we teach our children manners because that's a way of expressing love. We teach them to say please and thank you. Love does not insist on its own way. Is it always my way or the highway? Love is not irritable or resentful. What about this one? Do people walk around you on eggshells because they know you're irritable and you're ready to explode at a moment's notice? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices to the truth. Do you have a mental list of things that that you have against people? Or have you let go of that list and forgive, forgiven? Love bears all things. Do I bear with people who are immature? Love believes all things. Am I willing to believe that God can really change people? Or do I just put people in a box of the unchangeables? Love hopes all things. Do I extend trust again when relationships have been broken? And love never fails. Do I give up on people, or do I keep hoping and praying that God will work in people's lives? So, examine your life. Where do you need to grow in love? Corrie Ten Boom was a woman who suffered through the Second World War in a Nazi concentration camp. She was sent to the camp for hiding Jews in a home, and she writes this in her book, The Hiding Place. She says it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown hat, felt hat clutched beneath between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the doors at the rear. It was 1947 and I'd come from Holland to a defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in their bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not daring to believe it, and that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat The next moment in my imagination, I saw a blue Nazi uniform with its skull and crossbones. And the memories came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, her ribs sticking out of her malnourished body. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good is it to know, as you say, all of our sins are forgiven and at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him with his leather whip. It was the first time since my release that I've been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me but since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again his hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death Simply for the asking, it could not have been more than seconds that he stood there hand held out, but it seemed to me hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I knew that I had to do it. I knew that, that the message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But Corey Ten writes, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I silently prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so she writes, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, this incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being bringing tears to my eyes. I do forgive you, my brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. She writes, I have never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You know, if we are going to make a difference in this divided world, then in this place, we need to love one another. We need to be reconciled to one another. We need to forgive each other as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. You see the greatest greatest hermeneutic or the greatest apologetic to a world that is just raging out of control is Christians who love each other. There's Christians like Corey Tamboom and this guard who have no reason to forgive one another, but because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross, they're able to forgive. They're able to be brother and sister in Christ. And you see, if we're going to make a difference for Christ, it's not just about coming here for an hour on Sunday morning, brothers and sisters. It's about being the church to one another and loving one another, laying down our lives for each other, serving one another, caring for one another, bearing each other's burdens, praying for one another, doing all of the one another's of scripture, being this church for one another. And we can do that through the power that God supplies, the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is available for every person here this morning. We can become that type of community. But not only, not only will we make a difference by being a community that is characterized by love, but we will, be, we will make a difference in this world by living out our witness for Christ in the world. You know, once a student walked into Dr. Howard Hendricks' office at Dallas Seminary and he announced, Prof, I'm dropping out of school. Why is that? Dr. Hendricks asked. Well, he said, because I'm convinced that the Lord is going to return shortly and I want to be involved in ministry before he comes. Well, Dr. Hendricks replied, well, if there's something that you would be doing differently, if you knew that Jesus Christ is returning tomorrow, then you better be doing it. Now, Dr. Hendricks wasn't suggesting that the student drop out of school and go preaching on the streets. Now, I heard Hendricks say that if you knew that the Lord was coming, if he knew that the Lord was coming in five years, he would go to seminary for four years and have one year of ministry to be equipped, and that one year would be better than having just four years bumbling around. No, no, what he was saying is that we should live with a daily expectancy that Jesus is going to come back, but yet also in a normal manner that witnesses to the reality that Jesus is Lord. You know, throughout history, church history, there have been both individuals and groups that have got so caught up in prophecy about the Lord's coming that they start to act strangely. Some have sold everything, they've quit their jobs, they wait on a hilltop, waiting for Jesus to come back. You know, Harold Camping, he was very popular in the 1980s, and he predicted that Jesus would come back in 1988. What happened? What happened? We're still here. He then said Jesus would come in 2000. What happened? We're still here. You know, some of the Thessalonians had got a bit carried away. And the Lord's return is imminent. We're going to look at that next week. But they had quit their jobs. And they thought, well, that's good. I can just live off the welfare of other believers. But Paul says, no, no, no. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. The soon return of Christ should lead you to a responsible life. Look at what he says down in verse uh, verse 11. He says, and aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs. Now, this is I was thinking about this week. This is the ultimate introverts verse. <laughs> aspire to live quietly. All of you introverts are probably saying it internally. Now, you wouldn't say it externally. You wouldn't say it out loud because you're introverts. But you're probably saying, "There you go, team on. There you go. Tone it down. Tone it down, team on." The Bible says, aspire to live quietly. Now, what does Paul mean when he says we should aspire? Or in other translations, it says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Does he mean that we all sell up our property and move to the Adelaide Hills, have a commune? City-rich commune. No, that's not what he's saying, all right? That's not what the Apostle Paul's saying. Neither do I think that what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's not saying that we should be quiet about our convictions or quiet about the gospel. No, 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 no. Jesus said we need to be salt and light, which means to stand up for your convictions. The Thessalonians, Paul would say in chapter one, the gospel had rung forth from them. They were not quiet about the gospel. You need to be public about your faith. And tell others about Jesus. No, that's not what that means. Aspire to live a quiet life. I also don't think that we should tone down our gospel ambition. You know, Paul, Paul had an ambition. He wanted to preach Christ where Christ was not named. He said, I, he wrote to the Romans and says, I want to go up to Spain because I desire to preach Christ where Christ isn't named. You know, I'm sick of people throwing wet blankets over young people in particular when they, tell you their dreams about what they want to do for God. Don't be like that. Don't throw a wet blanket over someone who says, I really believe God wants me to do this with my life. And I remember in the history of the church, William Carey, who was the first Protestant missionary to India, he had a wet blanket flown over him when he came to this Baptist fellowship and he said, I feel like God is calling me to take the gospel to India. This older pastor stood up and he said, sit down, young man. If God wants to get the gospel to India, and he'll just do it himself. He won't use means. I'm so glad that William Kerry did not, did not listen to him. But his, his statement was this, you need to attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. What a great saying. Attempt great things for God. We have a great God, right? Let's be praying big prayers. Big prayers. You know, I once read R.A. Torrey's book on how to pray and he said, what would happen if God answered every one of your prayers this week? How would the world be different? That's challenging, isn't it? Are we praying big enough prayers for God to, to shake our community, to shake people's lives and draw them to himself? So I don't think that's what it means. Now, I think what this, what Paul means when he says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life, is this word quiet is used three times in the New Testament. It talks about being silent before the Lord. It actually is about having a peace and tranquility in your life. When everything else is just going south. Christians have this deep peace and in their heart, because they know the rock on which they stand. You know, this year has been a year of just amazing, unprecedented things, has it not? Bushfires, coronavirus, Donald Trump. And it looks like, and someone asked me yesterday, they said, what do you think about the fact that it looks like Joe Biden is going to be the president in the United States? I'm like, I'm, I'm Australian. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's one thing, but, but it doesn't really worry me. And I don't try to make an interpretation over world events, because I know who is reigning on the throne of heaven." And I know that he's moving all things to his appointed end. And we will stand out in this society when everyone else is rushing out to buy toilet paper and buy pasta. We will stand out if we are a non-anxious presence in this community. And we mind our own business. We don't get caught up in the endless trails on social media Typing out our opinions, but we mind our own business and are reasonable people. Now, Paul also says, he says, in addition to living quietly and minding your own affairs, he tells the Thessalonians that they should work with their hands as we instructed you. Now, we don't get the full force of this, but, you know, in the first century Greeks, manual labor was anathema. That was something that that the slaves did. But yet Paul, he saw the dignity in all work. He was a tent maker. He worked with his hands. You know, you know, what was Jesus? Jesus was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. You know, work is not wrong. It's not evil. Before the fall, God said to Adam, I want to put you in the garden to work it and keep it. There is a dignity that comes with work. But Paul points out two important reasons for Christians to work. He says, look down in verse 12, the first is so that you may walk properly before outsiders. And the second reason is that you may not be dependent on anyone. You know, I know for some people, they can't get a job because of health reasons or or some other reason and so they're unemployed and I understand that. But the New Testament says that we should be people who actually take after, look after our own needs. But also, Paul says there, he says, we should work so that we can walk properly before outsiders. The NIV renders it this way, that you might win the respect of outsiders. You see, what is your goal when you go to work? Is your goal just to provide for the needs of your family? Well, that's a, that's a noble goal. But there's actually a higher goal for your work. And that is you work in such an excellent way that you bring honor and glory to Jesus when people see the way that you work and the excellence with which you work, the way that you don't cut corners, the way that you'll go the extra mile, the way that you won't participate in office gossip, when you work in an excellent way, it brings glory and honor to Jesus. You know, this past week, I've been listening to some lectures by my old professor, Howard Hendricks, and he was just sharing some stories about some of the men that he was discipling at the time, men who were doctors and who worked at the medical school in Dallas. He said the, that these men came to him, and uh, five of them, and he said, I'll disciple you for two years. The only thing is, is that after I disciple you for two years, you then need to get another five men and, and do that again. And he said, "I'm now we're now ten, 10 levels in. 10 levels in of discipleship. And he said, it's changing the landscape of Dallas. He said, in this medical school where these medical doctors work, he said, half of the freshman class have come to Christ. You see, if you just leave the work of the gospel up to me, we're not going to get it done. But we all need to see that our mission is to take the gospel to the workplaces where God has placed us and work with such excellence it brings honor and glory to Jesus. I feel sorry for you. Christianity is so boring if it's just a a one-day-a-week thing for one hour in this room. How much more exciting is it if you see your workplace as a mission field who am I? I'm a child of God. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Where is my mission? My mission is in my doctor's surgery. My mission is in the the classroom that I teach. My mission is in the house that I'm building. I'm a builder. This is my mission field. And I take Christ with me and I bring honor and glory to Christ in that place. And let me tell you, that wins the respect of outsiders. See, I'm telling you people, can't you see it? Can you see what's happening in our world? Words. We have so much words, so much fake media. Who knows what's going on? Who knows what's really going on? It's hard to tell. And so, the thing that will cut through all of the noise is actually people who love each other deeply. When we actually, because of the gospel, love each other, and then people outside of this place who make it their ambition to live a life of quiet confidence in God, who don't meddle in other people's affairs, and who work hard for the glory of Christ, you will get opportunities to share the gospel. You'll get opportunities to talk about Jesus, and it'll make all the difference in the world. Let me pray for us, eh? Oh Lord, we live in uncertain times, with the big events that are happening in our world at the moment, but yet the biggest events have happened in the past, the biggest event in human history was when Jesus broke in. And He died on the cross and He rose again. And the biggest event yet to happen is that Jesus will return one day, soon. But we, Lord, we want to be about Your business and we want to be a community of Your people loving each other and living excellent lives in front of an unbelieving world, showing that that we love Jesus that he means everything to us. We're not functional unbelievers, but we believe that God is in control. We believe that prayer works and we're walking each day with our God. There's some people in this room and you know that, that you need to go and you need to you, need, you you need to come back to the lord because there is not love in your heart and you need to come back to him this morning i pray that you would do that oh lord i pray that you would minister your truth into people's hearts this morning for your honor and glory lord i pray in jesus name let's stand together let's worship the lord